is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. My name is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light Program. Coming up next is Slumbertime Stories, concluding our rather splendid tale from last week. But first, it's everybody's favourite, listeners' letters. Mabel, did you write this? Who says it's everybody's favourite? Well, it's certainly not my favourite. Who do you now? Yes, I'm sure you enjoy laughing at me reading all this poppycock out. Now look here, this better not be more of the same. Right, well, I, I don't know why I believe you, but for the sake of our listeners, I'll give it a go. Dear Messrs. Fothering and Tappet. Oh, right, that does it, Mabel. I'm scrapping this whole section starting from next week. I did warn you. You can pull faces all you like. I'm not changing my mind. <sighs> Dear Messrs. Fothering and Tappet. Trunsticles is a word I rarely use. Indeed, my husband Ernest has never employed it in the whole of his life, and he is ancient. Frankly, I doubt if I'll ever use it again. What words have you never used? Spigot, perhaps? Or tregulations? Or poopering? Or repunzelated? Or copulactivations? Or twingle? Or flatulaperones? Or coconisticles? Oh, for heaven's sake! No, I've had quite enough for that. I'm having words with you later, Mabel. And you can wipe that titter right off your Parkington place. <clears throat> I'm so sorry about this, dear listener. But fear not. From next week, I have a rare and special treat. Through some very diligent work, we have managed to locate in the ARC archives the wonderful recordings of old Albion folk songs collated by the venerable Dame Hildebrand Dilemma Spaniels. Now, these are truly rare and special records, and I really can't wait to play them for you. And frankly, anything would be better than these stupid letters. In the meantime, though, we have the second part of our story. This is an epic quest for a rather good supper, read by yours truly, Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb. Part two of Highcliff's Tea Room by Darren Callow. A few paces beyond the sixth corner, or was it the seventh, the corridor stretched out for nearly a hundred yards or so with no other soul in sight. The chaos of the lift lobby was no longer audible, and the only sounds that accompanied them were the clump of their boots on the stone floor and the low hiss of the occasional gas lamp on the wall. With this short lull from the hectic nature of their journey so far, and daring to believe they might make the reservation at Pierre's after all, Reggie decided he'd get a thing or two off his chest. You know, Ellen, there are two things that are puzzling me. She gave him a little look, as if to say, oh yeah, but he ignored this completely. The first is uh, the circumstances by which a young lady such as yourself came to be wandering these corridors. He held up a hand to prevent her from interjecting at this point. But that can, if you permit me, wait until later, as firstly I would like to invite you to join me for a hearty supper. She seemed about to protest, but he halted her again. 
No buts. Whether we make it in time or not, although I do pray we do, we shall dine somewhere and you will be my guest. She gave a little shrug but said nothing. Good, it's settled. Now the other thing you might be able to cast some light on is why this bally place is called the High Cliffs Tea Room. I mean, I get the High Cliffs bit, but where is the tea room? Ah now, piped up Ellen, that I do know. Legend has it that once upon a time, a little old lady called Mrs. Myrtle set up a tea room at the High Cliff to serve the few day-trippers that meandered that way and gave her somewhere to fulfil her retirement dream of spending all day baking and brewing. After a year or two, it became so popular that it seemed to make sense to add a restaurant to cater for those after heartier fare. Rather than build a new establishment next door, they accomplished this by extending on the side of the original building. This process continued, and one by one, piece by piece, year on year, other restaurateurs decided to jump on the bandwagon and add more and more eateries to cater for all the changing tastes of the, well, by now plentiful tourists. Then, as night follows day, the service industries came also. A laundrette here, a greengrocer there, florists, butchers, bakers, cake makers, until after many years the whole complex we are now traversing came into being. Oh, it's changed so many times and in so many ways that the only thing linking it back to its origins is its name. Now, eventually poor old Mrs Myrtle passed away and her tea shop closed. But out of respect to her and what had grown from her idea, no one else ventured to step into the tea shop business, but rather let it always be associated with her. Over time, and many more redesigns and rebuilds, the location of the original tea room has been lost. In fact, to this day, no one knows where it originally stood. Although there are plenty of mad theories as to where it might have been. Well, I never, muttered Reggie. Who'd have thought? You know, I'm a bit of an entrepreneur myself and I was contemplating opening my own establishment here. I can see that your knowledge would come in rather... His voice tailed off at this point, and his nose, and indeed whole face, began to wrinkle in displeasure. I say, what's that terrible smell? Ah, that, began Ellen, whilst rummaging in her bag to retrieve a pair of large clothes pegs is the Great Eastern Cliff Livestock Market. With that, she popped a clothes peg on her nose and offered the other to Reggie. He took it readily and snapped it over his bulbous nose with haste. That's not much, you know, he intoned through bunged-up nose. I can still smell it, he added. And pretty soon, he could hear it too. A great cacophony of animal noises hit him square in the chops as they came through another set of swinging doors and found themselves on a vast wooden balcony, looking down onto the most incredible subterranean, or indeed 
subterranean animal market that he had ever clapped his eyes on. The noise was ear-bursting. Quacking, oinking, braying, mooing, and the smell was quite overpowering. The by-now-ubiquitous stream of white-coated porters, tall-hatted chefs, and other miscellaneous officials was attending the many animal pens. Battalions of sheep, ducks, cows, and goats, and who knew what else, were being chivied and herded and flocked, and whatever one did with goats, through thoroughfares between the pens. Auctions were being held loudly at every corner, and for a second Reggie thought he might faint as all his senses were quite overloaded. In the end, there was no time for any of that carry-on, as Ellen grabbed his arm and dragged him down some stairs and right into the thick of it. Whilst carefully trying to avoid the heaving throng of animal life, and being careful not to tread in anything too effluent-looking, Reggie hurried along behind her, keen to get this leg of the escapade behind them as soon as possible. After a few moments, the exit for which they were heading came into sight. But before they could reach it, Ellen diverted them and came to a stop beside an animal pen. Go a goat, she instructed, pointing at the pen. Eh? muttered Reggie unable to understand what she was on about. He accompanied this with what he hoped was a suitably confused-looking shrug of the shoulders. Go a goat! exclaimed Ellen again, but realising this was getting nowhere, plucked her clothes peg from her nose. Buy a goat! Buy a goat! Buy a goat? spluttered Reggie, doing likewise. Whatever for? Or a duck, or a chicken, or something! added Ellen, urging him to reach for his wallet. But before he could ask for additional reasoning, she provided it anyway. We have one last trip to make, up the final few floors. But to make it, we need to take a livestock air taxi. And for that you need... Livestock. Reggie finished the sentence for her, and with a somewhat resigned air, he reached for his wallet. Negotiations were quickly concluded, for Reggie was certainly not short of a bob or two. Then the odd couple, replete with a slightly overexcitable nanny goat in tow, made a rapid exit of the market and headed direct for the livestock taxis. The High Cliffs Tea Rooms had two air corridors cleared for airship traffic. To the west, the patrons arrived fully suited and booted, looking to be deposited as near as possible, or, as in poor unfortunate Reggie's case, as far as possible, from their chosen eating establishment. The east side, where they were just emerging back into the warm evening sunlight, was primarily reserved for service vessels, and the livestock market floor in particular was served by a bobbing fleet of airship taxis, dedicated solely to transporting livestock between the many floors. Now, when I say fleet, I am perhaps overplaying it a smidge, uh, since, as it was nearly the end of the day, there were a mere 
two airships awaiting possible trade, and they appeared to be vying with each other for whose was the scruffiest vessel. Reggie was less concerned with this lack of choice than with the rickety walkway, suspended only with a handful of old ropes onto which they had to venture, goat and all. As they wobbled their way somewhat less than sure-footedly along the air bridge, Reggie tried not to look down the two hundred or so feet that encompassed the many wings of the tea rooms below them, and the peaking surf of the channel at the very bottom of the cliff. Away to the east, the beautiful white homeland cliffs stretched out as far as they could see, and the great elongated shadows of the tea rooms played across them as the late summer sun warmed their backs. Glancing sideways to avoid looking down, Reggie saw a big round clock that hung over the entrance of the market, and with some astonishment realised they still had two whole minutes in hand. I say, how far have we left to go? ventured Reggie, trying not to sound too excited as they tugged on the goat's rope to encourage its passage onto the fractionately less shabby of the two air taxis. Pausing from her exertions to pass the goat's rope to the sleepy-looking Gabby, Ellen looked up and pointed with her free hand. See for yourself, she announced, with more than a hint of triumph in her voice. Reggie did as he was bid, and just six or so stories up, beyond the garish neon of the American Eat Me Diner and the rather less flamboyant Ye Olde Authentic Nepalese Buffet sign, was a rather plain-looking wooden service door with a simple painted board that read Pierre's, tradesmen only. Catching sight of this, Reggie felt his heart leap, his pulse quicken, his soul sing, and his foot missed the last step completely, sending him somersaulting forward into the now untethered airship and directly onto both Ellen and their more than somewhat startled goat. The goat kicked out, as well it might, and caught the distracted airship pilot right in the How's Your Father? This in turn propelled him backwards into the gondola, and the fending pole he'd been using struck the envelope of the balloon and an alarming hissing sound accompanied by a disturbing, if gradual, lessening of altitude began to occur. Reggie's exclamation at this point, alas, cannot be printed. As the pilot struggled to regain his feet and attend to ballast and balloon, Ellen moved somewhat more speedily. Quick as the proverbial flash, she delved into her bag again, and to Reggie's complete astonishment, and no little alarm, extracted a rather nifty-looking handgun with a brass harpoon loaded in the barrel. Into this she inserted and clamped the end of a handy mooring rope and took aim high above them. With a barking crack of gunpowder, the harpoon and pursuing rope snaked rapidly up into the air. The other end she passed around her waist and threw the final length urgently in Reggie's direction. Hang on for dear life, she exclaimed. And just as Reggie took hold of the rope, it went taut and the airship gondola floor 
dropped away from under them. By this point, they both had every limb wrapped around the rope that seemed, by some miracle, to be holding tight. How long they could hang on for was another matter entirely. In these few seconds, Ellen had not ceased her action. She discarded the harpoon gun and in its place retrieved a complicated-looking clockwork thingamabob about the size of a box camera. And before Reggie could ask what the dickens it was, she expertly clamped it around the rope and then pulled down four slim rubber-coated handles on the side of the mechanism. Grab a handle, she instructed. Reggie complied and found the grips to be firm and much easier to hold than the rope. He then looked on bemused as Ellen inserted a large brass key into the mechanism and began to frantically wind. Now, whatever happens, do not let go of the handles, bellowed Ellen. Why? screamed Reggie. What's going to... Again his question was cut dead as Ellen ceased winding and with a flick of a sturdy-looking switch, the mechanism began to rapidly climb up the rope, dragging the two dangling miscreants along with it. Well, I say, gasped Reggie, kind of, as they sped ever upwards. Just as Reggie fancied he was catching the faintest whiff of freshly baked baguette, and only seconds after the astonished diners of Eat Me watched open-mouthed as they scuttled past, disaster struck. A strong gust of wind blew them out from the building and into a stomach-churning near-horizontal orientation. Reggie could mutter no oaths this time as the air was beaten from his lungs and it was all he could do to keep both hands on the still-climbing clockwork pulley. For a split second, the wind eased, and they found themselves briefly motionless in this reclining position. During this calm interlude, Reggie noticed that the air taxi they had left was now buoyant again, some hundred feet below them, and it began to chug back up towards them, with the goat standing calmly, as if she were a figurehead on the very prow of the gondola. Before he could contemplate this further, the lull ended, and they began to swing back with gathering speed towards the building. At this point, Reggie determined to clamp his eyes tight shut and offer up any prayer he could recall. With his eyes closed, he failed to see that they were heading directly for a giant billboard with a large poster for Bert's original Coach Inn Café and presumably the very face of Bert himself, looming some twelve feet tall, plastered across it. Their trajectory was sending them straight for Bert's beaming mouth, and they hit it full on with all their force. It barely needs saying that both Reggie and Ellen were astonished that they did not bounce off the hoarding, but instead plunged right through it ripping the paper in all directions. They continued to swing through a half-opened doorway hidden by the poster, and then they were dumped unceremoniously onto the floor of a long abandoned room. 
Dust and disused cutlery had flown in all directions as they landed, and it took them a few moments to recover their breath and get their bearings again. When they did, it became apparent that they had been deposited in what appeared to be the Marie Celeste of cafes. Set with just four tables, chintzy doilies, napkins and china plates still laid out for would-be diners. It was much as if when the last customer had paid their bill, the owner had simply locked the door and left, leaving everything just as it was. Ellen and Reggie gazed around them in a complete daze. Both the literal and metaphorical air had been sucked from them, and they were beginning to feel their bruises with every dust-induced cough. They were brought out of their reverie by a long bah! and looked back at the doorway and the shafts of light streaming through the torn edges of the poster to see a cheery goat face, followed by the ruddier cheeks of the taxi pilot peering in to see if they were still in one piece. Well, my very goodness me, offered the airman, fixing his landing hook onto the door frame and pulling his airship up against the billboard. What on earth have we here? He too was gazing around the freshly revealed interior. By this point, a winded but still energised Ellen had gingerly picked herself up and come face to face with the goat, busy chewing something it had nabbed from one of the twee tables. Curious, she reached out to tug the item from its mouth, brushed it clean of dust and goat saliva with her sleeve, and held it up towards the light coming from the old doorway. Well, I never, she breathed, almost unable to speak. What is it, my dear? coughed Reggie, trying to clear his throat. Without another word, she turned the menu around, and where she had wiped the dirt, you could see, in very flowery lettering, but as plain as the nose on your face, the words, Mrs. Myrtle's High Cliffs Tea Room. Well, I blinking never, muttered Reggie, quite astonished. All thoughts of the delights of Pierre's brasserie now extinguished from his mind. And truth be told, dear listener, little did he know that with this astonishingly unlikely discovery, both he and Ellen's lives would never be quite the same again. Postscript. This story is key in explaining why Reggie Peabody, later Lord Reginald of High Cliffs, eccentric, millionaire, and founder of the Mrs. Myrtle's Tea Rooms franchise, always came to keep a pet goat. Ellen Hall went on to become a renowned and glamorous explorer she is also credited with patenting the Hall's handheld harpoon and clockwork climbing contraption. Well now, wasn't that a simply marvellous tale? It certainly whetted my appetite for a hearty supper, I can tell you. 
and I hope it has yours too. Tune in to the ARC Light program next week for more Slumber Time stories. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Albion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All stories, voices and characters created by and copyright to Darren Cameron. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production of Albion Radiophonic Corporation. Yeah.